0: So, interesting thing. A lot of times, whenever uh, I'm putting together a message, it's, I don't know if it is a matter of some kind of recency bias where because I'm thinking of something, you start seeing it, you know, kind of the whole thing where uh, I never realized, uh, despite how disgusted Brad is, of the fact that I am very happy with my minivan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, you know, I started looking around, and, uh, as soon as I got a minivan, I started realizing, like, like, how many minivans there are, and, like, how many Pacificas are out there, and, uh, not, not a lot of guys driving minivans, but, um, you know, I start, like, you start seeing them all the time, right, and so I don't know if it's that, or if it's the fact that, you know, sometimes, God, I think, speaks to you in these very subtle, small ways that if you're not looking for him, you almost miss it. And so it's funny that this week as I was putting together my message, you know, I had like a series of conversations with people where kind of unprompted, this kind of stuff starts coming up. And what we're looking at today is the nature of how God ends up calling us to different things. Because there's a lot of uh, very defined roles that you know people think that God has when it comes to calling on us or communicating with us. It could be one of the most abstract aspects of being a believer is understanding how does God talk to me? How do I actually hear what God is trying to tell me? We all understand communication, despite the fact that some of us are better at it than others. Uh, we all understand the idea of talking to somebody and conveying a message. <clears throat> So what do we do with a God that oftentimes isn't talking with us that way? Now, some people will tell you, and to be honest, I I believe them when I've had a couple people come up to me and tell me that they actually have, have had experiences where they feel like they have audibly been able to feel like they're hearing at least like the message or a voice or something calling them to a specific thing. And God bless the people I've had those experiences. I, you know, either because of my own stubbornness and closed-mindedness, I I have never experienced that, but I believe that some people certainly do. But in our kind of American idea, this very like, uh, you know, fundamentalist, uh, evangelical way of looking at Christianity, we tend to very much hearken towards what uh, you would kind of call like a Pauline experience. So there's an idea actually when it comes to conversion to Christianity that's called the Pauline conversion. And if you think about what happened to Paul, he had this this very dramatic experience that was undeniable where God was literally talking to him and and it was something that stopped him in his tracks immediately and he had no choice but to kind of behold the glory of God. What I'm talking about is this in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, you see this. Now, Saul was still breathing threats. Keep in mind, Saul being being the Hebrewized name of, of Paul at this moment. Now, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from them to the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, Christianity, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. This is exactly the image that I think a lot of evangelical Christians love to talk about. It's one of the things you see when you kind of have the famous altar call, right? You know, you go to a big conference or something like that and there's altar call and throngs of people come up is the Pauline experience. But you know, sometimes there's problems with relying on the Pauline experience, and that is the fact that we know scripturally, we know practically, but we also know scripturally that God often does not communicate through these big, massive, booming voices. And when we basically limit God's ability to communicate to us to only these massive experiences, then what happens is very quickly, you can have hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, or millions of youth and children every single year responding to altar calls going up and then thinking that that's the only way God's going to communicate to them. So when they get into the real world where God communicates the way that we see scripturally, He often does, they say, where has God gone? He's left because they have not been taught or instructed on how to hear what I guess you could say are kind of these still small voices of how God oftentimes communicates to us. I'm not bemoaning those things because clearly God does communicate to many of us in that way, but God doesn't always communicate to us that way. He communicates all kinds of different ways. What I'm referring to is something that I know I've preached about a bunch, and so if you're tired of hearing about it, bear with me. But what I'm referring to is in 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, verse 9 through 13. You'll hear me talk about this a lot because it's one of my favorite pieces of scripture. Is the mountaintop moment of Elijah, right? So you end up having this in, uh, in in these verses, starting in verse 9. He entered a cave. He, Elijah. He entered a cave there and spent the night. Suddenly, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, "What are you doing here, Elijah?" Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your, com- your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they are looking for me to take my life. So you have Elijah and Elijah's like, he's, he's kind of having this interaction with God. And you know, there's an interesting turn of phrase in there when it says the word of the Lord came to him. So is this an audible thing, or is this something that is a, a yearning in his spirit? That, that's, That's kind of a question in there. But look at how it talks about God communicating to him as he ends up, you know, feeling like he's being directed to this mountaintop. Then he, the Lord, said, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountain and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? So it's interesting, and the reason why I love this so much is that God wasn't in the chaos God can certainly choose to present himself in the circumstances. He can show us his presence in very mighty ways. He's done it time and time again in the Bible. Many of our favorite scriptural stories are all examples of where God put his power and his providence over his creation, his dominion on full display through things like, you know, the smashing of Sodom and Gomorrah that we ended up seeing or the parting of the Red Sea, you know, these these monumental epic things. I mean, the idea of, you know, even with Christ, breathe his last breath on a cross and the chaos that you saw with the weather and earthquakes and all these other types of things. God can put his power on display when he so chooses. But yet God also often presents himself in more subtle ways. We see that God wasn't in all of the craziness. God was in this whisper in the midst of it. And I think there's something that is so like allegorically beautiful about that, that if you think about the circumstances in our lives, where we were going through our own storms and we were, we're going through our own challenges and our own troubles and we sat here and I'm sure whether, you know, it was something we saw in our face or something that was kind of buried in our heart may have, you know, even kind of lashed out a little bit, just saying like, God, where are you? I'm in the middle of dealing with all of this stuff. Where are you right now? And if we would have just shut up for just a second and listen for God talking, maybe what we would have heard is actually a still small voice whispering to us saying, I'm not in that. I'm in something that is deeper and that's what I need you to listen to. It actually makes a lot of mechanical sense if you think about it because you think about the mechanics of the Holy Spirit. The fact that we read scripturally that the Holy Spirit will, you know, communicate in these you know, these quiet groanings of our heart, you know, these things that are very much internalized. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we no longer have a need to see God on the outside because we can't experience him on the inside. But sometimes what that means is needing to actually stop and be willing to listen to things on the inside. But when we do that, that can be threatening because sometimes when we stop and we listen to what's on the inside, we also see all the other things on the inside that we're not happy with. We see all the aspects of ourselves that we may be insecure about, things that we may need to deal with that we're not ready to deal with emotionally, or things that we feel like we don't have the strength or the confidence to actually cope with. In order to hear the Holy Spirit, we have to be willing to actually receive the message that it is giving us, and that is often something that can be quite confronting, even though it may be worded in a very quiet, subtle way. But, you know, encouragement can also come from that and and, and redemption and, and all these other positive things, these blessings that we can experience in life, which is why we have to be disciplined about not getting so consumed about the big, massive displays of God's power and that being the only way he communicate, but understanding that God can also communicate through more subtle ways. There is this, this phrase that I've caught myself using more and more over the last, I'd say, year or so where I've communicated that, you know, I I think God sometimes talks to us, not necessarily through these these, these, these big, massive moments in our lives, though that happens too, but sometimes it's through a series of undeniable coincidences, a series of things that happen in our life that we look at and we say, I cannot picture any other way that things would have rolled out exactly like this, except for God it's very clearly God directing me or maybe pointing me or helping to guide me in a certain direction. Something else that I've spoken about, not necessarily here, but I've spoken about before is the fact that I look at what led Meredith and I to even being in this community. The fact that, you know, we see the fact that through what we're doing here today, I mean, just if I could could be a little bit self-centered for just a second, I look at it and I think about the fact that there have been opportunities to be able to reach out to individuals, to do counseling for people who needed counseling, you know, because they, they, they were dealing with some life, life, life tragedies or to be able to help to minister to some individuals who have, you know, said that, uh, you know, I never would have gone to church, but, you know, we have this church thing now and so we're doing this. And I think about where God is using me and where he's called me to serve and I look at that and I, I, I ask myself how I even got here. Because when I was in college, I wasn't going to school in order to sit here and to become the next Billy Graham. I was, I was going because, you know, originally I was thinking like, you know what, uh, I'm going to go and, and I'm going to join the Air Force. So, you know, they sat there and they were paying for my first year of college. And pretty quickly I went, well, that was stupid. So then I stopped doing that and I just focused on my engineering because I was doing engineering, right? I'm going to be a big airspace engineer. So I do that. And then you know what? 2008 happened. Don't know if you're aware of what happened in history in 2008, but the economy was kind of absolutely terrible. So there weren't any jobs anywhere. I go to a job fair. There's a dude there and he's like, there's a job fair up at Dahlgren. I'm like, what is a Dahlgren? I've never heard of a Dahlgren. And so that brings me up here. But then we're looking around and of course you have a bunch of young folks who are sitting here saying, we're a bunch of young folks looking to start our life and everything, so all the things young folks and young couples would want everything, where are you gonna go? Hey, you wanna go with all the retired people in Bowling Green? I didn't know what a Bowling Green was. I thought it was in Kentucky or Ohio. So I came up, so we came up here and there was one, exactly one house here. Nothing else we wanna look at. There was one single house that was in our price range and all that, and the only reason why it was still there was because the listing was terrible. And so we got in it, and it was amazing. And it was just the pr- it was it was very clear like God lined up everything that we needed in order to get into this place. So we get into this house, and then we end up seeing that that house is literally in the backyard with the church. I actually had to build a picket fence between me and the church because you got to keep Jesus at a healthy distance sometimes. So then we sat here and got in that church and we start attending that church. And then as we start attending that church, we see that there's a need that, you know, with the youth program where they, they had like a gap and they needed some help. So I start doing that and the person who was doing it said, well, actually, could you help out a little more? And that sucked me into, to like serving in youth ministry for all these years and because of, A lot of the dumb mistakes I made with, you know, how to do youth ministry or approach ministry, I ended up kind of falling away and coming back in. But every single time I would fall away, God would take that time and he would show me like you were doing these things wrong you're trying to do this your way and you can't do it your way you got to do it the way that that they need or the way it's going to serve those people and so that kind of brought me into ministry more and more and more and more and then brought the people into my lives that you know were responsible for me taking that and taking it to the next level and learning more and reading more and educating myself more eventually becoming ordained hearing a calling and then getting to this point and I look at that and I think how many things in that story were incredibly unlikely to happen in that way that led me to a place where I can serve other individuals as a part of a church that is specifically oriented towards reaching out to the type of niche groups that traditional churches maybe have overlooked that I have been so passionate about. I think about the things that God has, had, had, had set kind of a light in my life even going back to when I was in high school, kind of this passion for the fact that not who the church was already reaching, but for the people who looked and cynically said the church doesn't care about me. Why would I care about the church? People who would turn around and had kind of you know fooled themselves or convinced themselves that I don't need the church because uh, you know the church doesn't even follow Jesus anyway. I'll just have a relationship with Jesus without the church. But those feelings were coming from a place of maybe hurt or a place where they were pushed away or something like that. This is something that I look at my life and I go, Jesus put that seed in my heart years and years and years and years ago. And so when I look at the fact that he put me in a place where now we as a church family can reach those people and not just can, but are reaching those people, I look at that and I say, but God... It's the only way, it's the only way that that could have happened. And none of that happened because God blinded me on a road or because I went to a Billy Graham crusade. I went to a couple of those. Like it didn't happen because I went to some big camp or something like that. There was no big massive moment that I could post about on Facebook and get a ton of people to like it and share it and go, man, Look at just how on fire this guy is. It's because God worked in these subtle little ways, no doubt understanding that I don't want anything to happen in a big way because I know you, Joseph, and I don't want you to make this about you. So I'm going to make it happen in small, little, incremental ways, and you're going to see and experience every one of your failures and understand that what happens in Bowling Green, Virginia, what happens in Caroline County is going to be the result of my power and my glory working through your church family. So I look at that, and I mean, it's just a personal testimony, at least me, myself, about how I see and how I've always thought about God working through the lives of individuals. The number of times that God has brought the right people into your lives to be able to help minister to you. The number of times that God has helped to uh, if, if anything, uh, appear to almost get out of the way of something happening, allowing something to happen, because through that experience, we would learn something else. Maybe God wasn't communicating to us, through, us uh, through, through a big, massive event in a positive sense. Maybe God was permitting something to happen in our lives that we felt God wasn't talking to us, but in reality, He was communicating through His omission from saving us from the circumstances. God communicates in so many different ways. And when we limit God, when we, we ourselves limit His, His providence, and we limit His glory according to how we expect Him to communicate, we can end up missing out on big, massive blessings that He has for us. This is why people talk about the importance of the concept of discernment, that we have to be able and we have to be willing and we have to be humble enough to stop and not look at situations and circumstances for what we want them to be, but for what God has intended them to be. This is actually one of the main problems that the Pharisees had was that in their religiosity and in their authority that they had, after all, they were the good God-fearing people. If I were to combine, compare it to somebody today, uh, I wouldn't even necessarily compare it to a lot of you know, preachers and stuff like that, even though some of them definitely fall in that. I would just say, anybody that you look at today that has this idea that because I have this, I am somehow this level of Christian. Any of those people, that is pharisaical mentality right there. And so you look at those individuals, and because of their authority, their position, they felt like they had with God, they felt that their opinions of how God was going to communicate somehow mattered, and it clearly did not. You could see this in John chapter 7, starting in verse 40. You could just look at this interaction. Again, it's another one of these interactions that maybe you've looked at and you've seen a ton of times. I want you to focus on that communication, the expectation of how God talks to us. In verse 40, it says, When some of the crowd heard these words, they said, This is truly a prophet, speaking of Jesus. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the house of Bethlehem where David lived? So the crowd was divided because of him. Some of them wanted to seize Jesus, but no one laid hands on him. Then the the servants came to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring Jesus to us? The servants answered, No man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, Are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, the one who came to him previously and who was one of them, said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? The others responded, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied, investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. There's several interesting things in here. The first thing that you have to see is this reference to Galilee. One of the things that I put in the home church video was I said, you know, this would be kind of similar to somebody saying, you know, the second coming of Christ is going to happen because of somebody or not. I said, you know, the, the next Albert Einstein, that's why I said. The next Albert Einstein, uh, you know, if somebody said, Next Albert Einstein is gonna be an individual who grows up in Beckley, West Virginia. Then most people would go, the next Albert Einstein of all places is not gonna come from West Virginia. Um, and you know, I kinda of said, they might, but if we're all being honest, he's probably not. Um, and you know, we have these mentalities about certain places, about certain cultures, about certain societies, where we say, well, surely nothing of this can become of that, right? You know, and this is kind of like the, if you think about it, it's really the, the root and the foundation of different prejudices that we may have. I shouldn't even bother doing anything with these people or with this location or with this culture because everyone there is already a lost cause. We've already passed judgment. And so I don't need to worry about it. Well, that's exactly what Nicodemus was kind of pointing out with the Pharisees. Nicodemus, keep in mind, this is the individual who had approached Jesus under cover of night because he didn't want all of his friends to see him. Undercover night to uh, approach Jesus, and they had that famous interaction talking about what it means to be born again. Where Nicodemus was confused, well, What do you mean I could be born again? And, and Jesus explained this concept that you must be born again in, in order to be accepted into the, the kingdom of heaven. So Nicodemus being one of the only individuals who was actually willing to listen stops and sees that there's some amount of wisdom there. You can see he's listening. And as a result of that, you look at the scriptures and I mean, it's pretty clear, like he, he was clearly blessed in the, in the sense of be able to have an, like an individual one-on-one with the Messiah. That's kind of a phenomenal thing, all because he was willing to stop and he's willing to listen to the unexpected. He was not so ready to limit where God may be trying to communicate based on his own biases and his own opinions. And with us ourselves, this is something that we see that we do very, very commonly. How many times do we have individuals that we don't want to talk with because we just think they're kind of annoying? I know this happens because I've seen myself go to certain people and I see them go the other way. So I, I, I know that this happens. Um, I might have done it a couple of times myself. But it's something that's a very natural human thing that sometimes you just kind of go like, oh, I just, I just don't, I just, I can't deal with this person today, you know? And then you move on. It's a very human, it's a very, from like a human perspective, it's a very understandable way to look at things. But yeah, you look at that and say, I wonder how often God wants to communicate to us exactly through that. But that there is a, a trial of humility that has to take place before we can get that blessing. You look at the times that, Uh, Jesus asked individuals to do things before he blessed them. Uh, You know, when he went to individuals that were at the pool of Siloam and basically said, like, you need to get up and you need to go over to that pool and you need to go wash yourself and then you're going to be healed. And when he would sit there and tell them things like that, is it that Jesus couldn't have done it without that water? Is it that Jesus couldn't have healed the blind man without, you know, uh, spitting in mud and rubbing it on the guy's eyes? He could have done everything without that. But sometimes we have these trials because they are things that condition us and they prepare us for the blessing that God wants to give us. So sometimes there is an amount of doing, not because the doing has earned it, but because the doing is a part of the conditioning process when in our own hearts and our own minds that prepare us to be able to see not the big massive work, but prepare us to be able to see the still, quiet voice that God is trying to speak to us. One of the things that I just referenced was this individual that was healed of his blindness. And the story around that individual is, is it's beautiful, but not, again, we're going to trivialize divine acts here for a second, but... Uh, the miracle itself is, we'll just say from a literary perspective, it's, it's another miracle. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you hate to kind of like say it like that, but it's, it's, it's another miracle. Like Jesus does so many miraculous things. You go like, it's another one. What's crazy is what happens after the miracle. Because after the miracle, he goes and people are like, hey, that dude used to be blind and he's walking around now. And this was kind of done in front of people. So like everybody's like, well, that's weird. We need to go see this. But remember, you got these Pharisee guys, right? And they're looking at this and they're trying to figure out this guy. Because of all their biases, they're like, there's no way God could be communicating to us through this dude from Galilee, from the West Virginia of the biblical world. So they end up, going and doing this big like uh, uh, trial, so to speak, you know, investigation to try to figure out what really happened here. Somebody is fooling somebody and I smell a rat. We need to get down to the bottom of it and find the rats because there's no way that God is communicating to us through this individual. So we end up seeing this happening after the miracle. Now again, remember the context is that Jesus has spoken to an individual that's blind. And he, he, if you recall from kind of childhood Sunday school, you know, he kind of spits in the mud and, and then puts on the guy's eyes. And then it says, you know, something like scales fell off his eyes and he could see, right? So you end up seeing this. Then we get to John chapter nine, starting in verse 13. They, the servants, brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. It's a big problem, Right? Of course, the voice of God isn't going to break our holy laws, right? You can imagine somebody saying that, uh, you know, if Jesus comes again, he's not going to listen to music that wasn't written in the 1930s and put in a hymnal. He's going to, you know, uh, surely. Um, So we continue on. It says, uh, then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. The man says, he put mud on my eyes. He told them, I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbaths. So he doesn't do what I expect him to do as a good holy man. Therefore, he must be a devil. Uh, <laughs> this is something that it's, it's you absolutely, if you, if you listen, if you're cynical enough, if you listen, you can absolutely hear Christians calling other Christians and saying they are certainly bad Christians or they're bad people or they have bad motives because they're trying to reach people in a way that I don't expect them to. That's not my tradition. And so because of that, they must be doing something of the devil. They must be doing something wrong and selfish kind of what you see going on right here. We have our laws about the Sabbath. He doesn't do it. So surely he's not, he's not of, of, of God. Um, uh, but others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, the formerly blind man said. The Jews did not believe this about him that he was blind and received sight, until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. So they pull his parents up to verify that he actually was blind. Uh, They asked the parents, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And the parents said, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he now sees and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. And what's kind of funny in here is when you go through and you actually do like an interesting little like deep dive study on this, you start finding out that there's actually kind of like an interesting little thing in here that because of all these different in-depth reasons, it was actually very likely apparently, to so exactly what was going on. Uh, but basically, they didn't want to run afoul the Pharisees. So you have these other individuals that are your support network, right? They're your people who are always around you. You can rely on them through thick and thin and all that. This is the importance of not deriving the strength of your faith purely from the people around you. We want to be in a cloud of witnesses. We want to have individuals around us who can love us, who can support us. But your faith is your faith. And ultimately, when we all reach heaven one day, what we have to account for is not how well our friends supported our faith, but what faith that we had. So in verse 22, his parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confesses him as the Messiah, he or she would be banned from the synagogue. This is why the parents said, he's of age, ask him. There we go. Verse 24, so a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. And this is the best response ever. This individual who has just experienced the supernatural power and redemption of Jesus Christ, all these people trying to dissect the theology, well, if he's a sinner, he can't be a prophet, he must be of the devil, you're trying to overcomplicate things. Look at this. He says, he answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind. Now I can see. That's it. That's the end. That's the whole thing of it. And you look at that and you look at the storm that the Pharisees were trying to look through. Well, he violated the Sabbath. He does these things. He's from the wrong place. All this stuff. Well, let's pull his parents up all that. What you're seeing or you're seeing a, a whirlwind and an earthquake of all these conditions and thoughts and deep dives. And look, I love, love, love to deep dive and like microanalyze things and all that. But sometimes what it comes down to is not the chaos that we create around the situation. Sometimes all that matters is the very simple, very quiet thing that God has given to us. I was blind, and now I can see. Sometimes all there is for us is, look, I don't know, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if God perfectly lined up everything so that I could buy this material possession of a house and an area and all that. Like, I, I don't know. All I know is that I didn't really have a calling or a conviction to do anything like this, but now I'm here that's what I know and so when you boil it down and you just look at the quiet thing that maybe God is trying to communicate to you it may just be you need to stop overthinking things in a world that has so many different conditions and so many different variables around you that you got to consider in each and every single situation you know even as a church in a, in a in a world where you know you need to sit here and you need to strategize you need to have your process and you need to do all these things up down left right uh, Maybe sometimes we just need to stop and we just need to recognize a few simple, pure truths. God is God. God reveals Himself to us regularly. God loves us. God set up a covenant with us. He's purely holy, and because He's purely holy, He cannot simply overlook our sins. But because He is purely love, He did send His pure Son to die a pure death on a cross to take impurity upon himself so that then we could be seen as pure even though we are not pure as a result of that god presents me opportunities each and every single day to be able to love an individual that is very difficult even for myself maybe to love an individual that i can show compassion to that maybe everything else is screaming at me that they don't deserve compassion that I have an opportunity to maybe give a a refreshing drink of of water of forgiveness to an individual that maybe we will look at with our human eyes and say does not, in fact, deserve forgiveness. But that's what we have. And we can microanalyze it. We can look at the conditions and the what ifs and the third and fourth and fifth and sixth order effects of what we're going to do. We can look at those things all day long. But sometimes what we need to do is stop and be quiet. And listen for the still small voice that God is using to communicate to us. God may communicate to us through big events, through massive milestones in our lives. But he may also communicate to us through a series of unexplainable coincidences. So we need to listen for those coincidences and for where God may be making himself equally clear if we just quiet down just a little bit. Let's pray. Father God, as we sit here and we think about all the different things going on in our lives, all the different factors that we have to consider and the obligations we have, different things with travel and kids and work and uh, retirement, vacations, all whatever it is that we may be dealing with, we just pray that you can help us to be able to cut out the noise just a little bit so that sometimes we could just simply stop and dwell in your presence. Help us to have the discipline to be able to stop transmitting so much and just kind of receive what it is you're trying to tell us, the calling that you may have laid before us. Help us to be able to overcome the different aversions and the biases and the prejudices that we may have so that we can remove that that chaos that surrounds us. And finally, God, we just pray that you would make your Holy Spirit in us known, that you would communicate to us and that you would help us so that when we have those moments in our lives that we say, where are you that we, can, that we can hear, that we can see, that we can experience your power, your love, your grace, and your compassion. God, help us to be able to experience you. We pray this in your son's precious holy name. Amen.